Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast, your number one spot to get mentoring, guidance, and behind the scene learnings to help you understand what it really takes to launch, grow, and scale your packaged food or beverage business. On the show, you'll hear from food founders at various stages of growth, and you'll hear from me and my 14 years of packaged food and beverage experience. Each episode is packed with insights, inspiration, and learning to help you on your food business journey. I'm your host, Ainsley, and this is the Food Founders Podcast. Before we jump into today's show, I want to thank our sponsor, the Food Brands That Sell program. Food Brands That Sell is a six-week deep dive into the CPG industry and teaches you how to win within that industry by creating a brand that you, retailers, and consumers love. Here's what a recent alumni had to say about the program. I am so grateful that I chose to do Food Brands That Sell. I learned so much about myself, my journey, and my company. These six weeks changed how I'm doing my business, and I can see the difference already. I no longer feel alone. If you aren't already on the waitlist, hop on over to foodbrandsthatsellwaitlist.com or grab the link below to make sure that you are first to know when the program is accepting new students. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with the founder of Akari Fish, Mike Mitchell. Mike, welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Ainsley. I know a bit about Akari Fish. I discovered you guys a few years ago at Expo East. But for anyone who does not know about Akari Fish, can you explain to us what exactly you are? Sure. So we started a few years ago. We are based in Oakland, California, as well as in Southern Mexico in the state of Tabasco. Um, And we came up with the idea four years ago when I was working with small-scale fishing communities in Southern Mexico. And I came across what they call in Mexico, the devil fish, because they hate it so much. The common name is sucker mouth or armored catfish. But uh, basically, it's a very common aquarium fish originally from South America. It's been in Mexico for now 20, 25 years. It's also found and a lot, basically wherever warm tropical water is around the world. And it causes a lot of different environmental and economic issues. And so the idea was really to start working with these fishermen, process it, sell to restaurants. But one thing led to another. We started experimenting in the kitchen and we came across jerky. And so our first product uh, for the market has been uh, this El Diablito fish jerky that we're using the fish that is, you know, this invasive trash fish, accounts for about 70% of the wild fish capture and we're turning it into something tasty that's good for the environment and good for you as well. This is like a true upcycle product and really helps the entire ecosystem when I think about it because by using the devil fish, using it for a product, you allow other, you know, you would allow fishermen to flourish, you would allow other species to grow as well. And that really hasn't massive impact on the entire ecosystem. So I think it's fantastic with what you guys are doing. Okay. You mentioned originally you were thinking of just selling the fish as a whole. Then you started experimenting in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Did you set out to create a CPG brand 
Or were you setting out to, hey, I want to solve this, you know, environmental issue that I'm seeing? Or did you just stumble across it all? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Yeah, uh, I guess for starters, I had no intention of ever starting a CPG brand. The goal at the initial outset was really following the footsteps of a lot of other invasive fish stories. So lionfish in the Caribbean is a common one. Asian silver carp in the Mississippi and southern Canada is a big one as well. Really just copy what they did, you know, work, uh, work with local fishermen, work with chefs, create a market and demand for it. It's something I did in my free time in Mexico. And I, I used to say they would pay me in like tacos because community a leader would invite me over to give a talk about, oh, you know, dispel some of the myths and rumors around it, show people how to process it because it's, it's a unique fish. But then, yeah, we, we started donating fish to a migrant shelter down south. A lot of Central American uh, migrants uh, cross through where we are in Tabasco. And then because people are on the road for so long, um, I said, well, you know, we have all this fish. What if we preserve it somehow? Uh, canned tuna is a highly sought after item, for example. And so I said, well, maybe we could try canning it. No, that was pretty complicated for us, smoking it. And then we said, well, we have a dehydrator. Let's make some jerky. And that was really how we came about jerky. Um, but for us, we like to say that we're product uh, agnostic. We actually have some other products in the work because the real core mission is creating a market and jobs around this invasive fish. So it's a you know win for the fishermen and win for the, for the environment. I love that. Uh, and what does your relationship look like with the fishermen and that entire community piece right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're happy. I've, so I, I worked with these communities for a long time before we started. And, and now um, it's been it's been great to see. You know, we at first it was like, hey, crazy dude, like no one's going to buy this fish. No one's going to eat this fish. And now we have a processing facility. We hire people from the community. People are, folks are making 40, 50% more than they did previously. Fishermen are stoked because, you know, they used to throw this fish away. And now all of a sudden it's like this economic boom for them. And then on top of that, what's really cool is going back to these communities and seeing people eating this fish now as well. And so it's been really like a holistic kind of project in terms of not only the creating jobs and helping the fishermen, but also just seeing some random dude cooking this fish now is pretty cool. Okay. I have to say, because I've had the product and I think it's fantastic. If anyone is thinking like, oh, why wasn't anyone doing this before? Maybe it doesn't taste great. Like guys, it tastes fantastic. And you know, I don't know if a lot of people are like this, but I know myself, a lot of jerky might taste great, but then I actually feel not so great. My stomach does, does not want to digest it. When I tried this, I did not have that at all, actually. So that for me was extremely exciting. Can you share why someone like myself and other people might not have the same uh, digestive issues with your product versus other jerky products out there? Sure, sure. So I'll preface it with I'm not an expert for sure, but I have a couple of theories because uh, I have a similar experience with normal, say, beef jerky as well as our product. So one is our product has been described as like a lighter or a fluffier beef jerky. So I think just the density and it's a little softer, as well as it doesn't have any fat. There's, there's really, really low fat content in this fish just naturally. And so I think that could be another factor in that it's just like a lot easier to process because it's really just like protein, water, and then we have a very clean label. So the original flavor, it's just fish. And then I think six all natural ingredients, you know, that you would find in your pantry. So salt, pepper, garlic powder, stuff like that. Um, and so we're not introducing any like long ingredients that I can't even pronounce, for example. 
yeah, that's really refreshing to see in that category that it is, you know, a better for you alternative that you can have, uh, whether you're camping, whether you're on the go, whether you just need a pick me up midday. It's great to see that that's going to like boost you and then not bring you down later as well. And it can be really clean for sure. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you weren't necessarily setting out to create a food and bev company, you just kind of saw this opportunity, started creating this and saw the economic and the environmental impact of this. What's been one of the pieces that you have learned along the way that you wish you had almost like figured out earlier? And I know everything happens as it's supposed to, but you know, has anything sure. happened along the journey where you're like, oh, I wish I discovered this in, you know, month 12 or month 18 or month three of this? Sure, sure. The list is probably too long for this interview, but one that really stands out that I always mention, like big uh, error that I made at the outset was we first started uh, just making small batches at a, a friend's house in Mexico City. And we would bring in small amounts to the U.S., like in our carry-on. And we'd sell it to friends and family, you know, as most EPG companies do, testing and everything. And then when we felt like we were getting ready for that next level to really launch and expand our, our market, one of our advisors said, hey, it sounds like you should just hire a co-packer, you know, and they'll take care of everything for you. For us, you know, the social mission is so strong. We were like, well, we really want to hire local people. We want to create better jobs. We can do all this. And so we went down that path of trying to set up uh, our own jerky facility in Mexico, which um, was just a complete and utter disaster, a, a sinkhole for money. And we ended up just scrapping the project and it set us back, you know, maybe uh, six months. Uh, but and a bunch of money because we tried, you know, we just tried, tried, tried. But at the end of the day, um, what we learned is it's really nice, especially like CPG is hard enough. And so as much as you can break it up, but, you know, specialize in what you're good at. And then, hey, if you can lean on other people for design or lean on other people for co-packing, do so. Because unless you have really deep pockets, it's really hard to do when it's just a you know, two-man team. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. It is, uh, it can be a very intensive industry in so many different ways. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that you're right. Like sometimes it's better to like bring on those experts to do those certain pieces, especially when it's something like creating a factory or something like that or production facility. But I get it. The social mission is so strong with you guys. Uh, Has that always been part of who you and your co-founder are? Or once you saw this, you know, opportunity where you like, hey, we need to do something about that. Yeah, kind of a combination of both. You know, before I started the company, I'd been working in Central America and in Southern Mexico for a while on I would like social minded, socially minded projects, international development type projects. Um, that was why I got involved in fish farming and, and uh, sustainable fishing as well. In the first place was to really help develop communities, create new economic opportunities. And then we actually ended up meeting at Berkeley in a master's program called Master of Development Practice, uh, which is basically international development. So it was kind of like, hey, you know, we both have that that focus, that mindset, and we ended up being good partners. And talk to me about how you guys divide and conquer this business. Sure. So I work really closely with the team in Mexico. We have two full-time staff in Mexico. 
dealing with the production, filet operations, stuff like that. So I work really closely with all the Mexico operations, the fun stuff, figuring out how to get a bunch of fish from the middle of nowhere, Mexico, where it's, uh, I guess in Celsius, you know, today it's like 42 degrees or something. Um, and how to get that up to uh, Saskatoon, Canada is, uh, is a challenge. So I focus a lot of that. And then I do uh, sales and marketing as well. And then Sam does a lot of the operational stuff and the finance stuff, the stuff that I'm really bad at. So he takes care of all the co-packer relationships, packaging, fulfillment, stuff like that, as well as all the finance and accounting and stuff that drives me crazy. It sounds like you guys have found a way to divide and conquer to stay in your zones of expertise, your zones of magic in the business. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's, it's a very good match, I'd say. Any advice for anyone who is maybe thinking about bringing on a partner or maybe thinking about launching and they're not sure if they should do it by themselves or do it with a partner? Any, any advice that you have in that realm? I know that's a piece that people kind of toss around a lot and they're not quite sure which is the best route for them. Sure. Yeah, I, I think one thing is don't, don't feel like it has to be your best friend. You know, Sam and I are close, we're friends and we were friends before the company and all, but I think there's benefits of not being like a brother and sister kind of deal, like so close. It's, and so we can talk, uh, uh, like discuss things at a very professional level without compromising a friendship, if that makes sense. And then look for someone to, as well that can complement your skill set. You need to be really honest with yourself. Like I've known for a long, I went to business school undergrad, so I knew that finance and accounting were were not great for me. And so when I met Sam and he has that more analytical mindset, I was like, yeah, this is a very good match. So look for people that can complement your skills as, as opposed to just someone that you enjoy spending time with. And then regarding going about it by yourself versus co-founders, I'm a huge fan of co-founders. I tried to do it myself for a while. I also I cycled through a few potential business partners in Mexico. Nothing really worked out, but having someone else at the very least, that you can commiserate with and be in the trenches with is, I think, very helpful because no one will understand everything that you're going through, like you or your business partner. Yeah, I really like that how you put that in terms of like someone to kind of go through it with. And it's okay to go through a few potential partners if you've got a great idea and you know that you want to bring someone on. Yeah, it's like a marriage in a lot of ways, right? So you want to make sure that you guys complement each other and that you're in it for the long haul and that you work really well together. I think that's really, really great advice for people. Mm-hmm. Okay, the the fish is in Mexico. Mm-hmm. You're in the U.S. How on earth is your fish being manufactured up in Saskatoon? What's going on there? Yeah, yeah. So definitely less than ideal. You know, Sam and I are both American. We are based in the Bay Area. Back in 2018, the concept was really simple. You know, hey, let's the, the, the our plant is registered with the FDA, and so. The FDA manages all seafood. And so we said, yeah, okay, we can import our fish to the U.S. We had a co-packer. We'll make it into jerky. We'll sell it in our country. Go to farmer's markets, all this stuff, like a normal CPG company would do. Unfortunately, there's been a decades-long trade war between Asia, but specifically Vietnam and the American South. So states like Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, uh, around catfish, um, which is very odd. But essentially, American producers have lost a lot of market share over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years due to cheaper imports. I always like to throw this into the Vietnamese catfish, which is actually called basa or swai, wins on a blind taste test, I think three to one over the American catfish. So I like to add that, you know, it's not just because of price, it's also flavor. And so yeah, they've, they've tried a few different things to slow down imports. And the most recent one was a few years ago, they pushed the, re- the, the super 
supervision or the regulation of catfish to the USDA, which governs meats and poultry, as opposed to the FDA. And this, and essentially what this does is bans almost all catfish imports into the U.S. Um, and so Mexico is banned, Canada is banned. Uh, the only three countries that pass that regulatory hurdle are China, Vietnam, and Thailand. So what's unfortunate for us is this applies to all 3,000 some odd species of catfish. And the way I liken it is it's kind of like your father-in-law's cousin, you know, like our fish compared to the normal American catfish. You know, you'll see them at a, a wedding or something, but in your kind of family, but not really. Much different flavor, texture, everything. And so, But unfortunately, we are subject to that rule. And so we've been working with Mexican authorities to bring our fish into the U.S. Working with bureaucrats takes a long time. Um, and so in the meantime, we decided to launch the company in Canada. And we spent almost a year, year and a half replicating everything we had done in the U.S. in terms of co-packers and packaging and everything and setting up in Canada. And we finally launched last year. And so... We are an American company operating exclusively in Canada as of now, although we do have a couple things in the works uh, for the U.S. market that we're working on launching hopefully in the next two or three months. I Okay, first of all, it sounds like bureaucratic hell, if you will. I, I got to ask, I mean, a lot of people would have been like, heck, we're going to throw in the towel. Uh, this is a lot of challenges. We need to set things up. Did that ever go through your guys' head and... And how did you push through that and, and confirm and commit to, no, we want to move forward with this. We're just going to switch marketplaces right now. Yeah, it definitely crossed our mind of like, hey, you know, it's hard enough. You read all those statistics, you know, of like all the failures and how hard it is. And then, oh, yeah, we're just going to casually operate in a foreign country. You know, it's easier than, say, whatever, uh, Vietnam or something. But like, I've only been to Canada a few times in my life. So it's, it's not that easy. The idea has been and, and still is. You know, okay, we'll launch in Canada. We'll learn. I was planning on spending most of 2020 in Canada. That didn't work out because of COVID. But then eventually take those learnings. And then once we get that export clearance in the US, then really be able to scale up in the US. You know, Canadians love reminding me that the population of California is larger than Canada. I've heard that I don't know how many times. And you know, it's true. It's just, it's just a much larger market in the U.S. that we can uh, that we can address. Yeah, absolutely. It is true. A lot of times, companies will ask me, "Oh, should we expand into Canada?" And I- I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm based in Toronto right now, and I will say that stat. I'm like, guys, just focus on a different place in America. Like, there's so much opportunity there still. But Canada can be a great testing ground for sure, and there is still lots mm-hmm. of opportunity here. It's a very health focused country, and there is certainly opportunity and a lot of learning. I like how you mentioned that, where it's like you can take the learnings from the Canadian market, apply them to the US. It's very, very similar in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Why not? It's like having a testing ground for when you expand down there. And you're going to have market traction as well to be able to have those conversations with retailers to say, you know, this is our velocity. This is how quickly we're moving. This is exactly our audience. I'm really happy that you guys decided to continue to push forward as you're working through that versus, hey, let's just wait. You know, you can still make it work. Absolutely. And selfishly, me as a Canadian, I can get my hands on it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Anything that you guys have done that that you would say has like unlocked a bunch of other pieces, you know, we can do a whole lot of pieces in our business, but sometimes there's that like one domino effect that unlocks a lot of others. Has there been anything like that for you guys in the business? Hmm. 
Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the regulatory piece, I think, like really, like we went through the whole process of becoming a certified importer. That's not the right term, Sam would know, but certified importer <laughs> for, for Canada. So that really like opened up the door. And that was kind of like, in our mind, like a coup, like, hey, we're two dudes in California bringing in fish from Mexico to Canada. And we managed to like get all these permits, like without even being there. So I think that obviously opened up our ability to sell in Canada. The other thing too was... I think just like constantly experimenting or playing around with going back to our social mission, right? And like the mission is process as much fish as humanly possible, scale production and increase our impact. And so at the end of the day, if we're selling raw filet, which I tried for a while in Mexico, if we're selling jerky, other products, I think that has helped us pivot and and, and just like stay true to who we are and, and continue to grow. And so I think, again, like like I alluded to, that's how we're, we're going to actually break into the US market here in a couple of months is just like constantly thinking like, okay, what what's our end goal? And it's not to revolutionize the jerky market, for example, it's the fishermen and processing this fish. And so however we can achieve that, um, you know, we're, we're open to experimenting, trying new things. That makes a lot of sense. You focused on that end goal and it's how you got there. You can be flexible with there's certain things in business to be flexible with and other things not to be. And mm-hmm. having that end mission as the piece that's not, I think helps you guys, you know, go around all these twists and turns that have been thrown your way and you're managing it really well. <laughs> Thank you. Any advice for anyone who is thinking of starting a business on uh, to solve to solve an issue in the world that they see? Any advice for, that you would have for uh, for a food founder in the early stages, or is just kind of tossing around ideas right now? Sure. One is you know make sure that you obviously have a really strong passion for that problem. You know I've seen people that they might read like a quick article and be like, oh well, hey, that's a problem. I'm gonna go throw money at it and try to create a company around that without like really trying to understand the issue. And and so like for me, I've worked with seafood and then I worked with this fish specifically for years before we launched the company because I really now know all the ins and outs. But I think the big thing is just around mental health and preparing yourself because especially in these days, like with social media, I feel like there's such a, it's like a misnomer. It's, it's really just a misjustice of like how the, the entrepreneurship process is characterized of like, oh, I started in my garage, like, and now I'm here, you know, I'm in a thousand Whole Foods locations or whatever. But, and it's, it's everything but linear, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I was just selling my garage. I did a farmer's market and then Whole Foods. But I think that's the, um, that's like the picture that a lot of us have from the outside looking in. And it's, you know, there's days where we're like, Hey, we're we're gonna do this. You know, we're we're actually gonna make it. And then literally the next day, it's like, what are we doing? Like, I should just go work for corporate America again. Like, this is we're gonna fail. And so being able to modulate those ups and downs, I think, is really important. But it's not something a lot of people talk about. And I like when I give presentations and stuff about us, I like talking more about the failures because I think it's important, you know, to highlight that yeah, we're here now, but we've gone through all these different things, like sinking money in a failed Mexican co-packer, right? That you wouldn't talk about in a pitch deck, but I think are a very important lesson. I, I thank you for saying that because I think it is so important. I like to say entrepreneurship is glorified. You know, mm-hmm. it is sexy. It's like being a movie star. You know, people, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and it is uh, a lot more difficult than people make it out to be. And there's a lot of those ups and down waves that you need to be able to ride. And and I, I think actually, as you even mentioned, that's like, you're not going to put it in a pitch deck, but you know what it does show when you're vulnerable with that is that you have that tenacity to be like, hey, we're going to figure it out. And I think that is important. I think it is important for more people in the industry to talk about it. Is there anything that you do to help regulate your 
ups and downs help lift you up when you feel like you maybe have a hit the floor? What's your secret to keep pushing, pushing through and keeping your mindset? in the right place. Sure. A lot of, yeah. One, talking to my wife constantly. So I'm very grateful for her because she's an amazing sounding board. And I don't know how she like puts up with like, oh, like my whining. And then like an hour later, like my screams of celebration. So good on her. I'm very lucky. Also just like constant communication with my co-founder talking about these things. Like I said before, no one will understand what you're going through like your co-founder. Um, and so really being able to go through that and then taking breaks, you know, um, like a month or two ago, I went camping by myself for a few days and just like I was in the middle of nowhere with no one around and just like really being able to reflect. And yeah, and then I try to exercise, like swim or, or go on walks and listen to just like podcasts not related to food or anything. Like I listen to baseball podcasts because it's just like, you know, I can turn my brain off, think about baseball gossip as opposed to like everything that you're going through. I think is is helpful to just switch gears for a little bit. That's really great advice. You you sometimes need to get out of the forest to be able to <laughs> what is it? Get out of the see the forest from the trees. You need to get out like look at the whole thing, you know? And you can do that when you're not just in it day to day. So that's really great advice. And thank you for <laughs> sharing that. Um and thank you so much for sharing your story and opening up. Next time you come to Canada I look forward to us being able to connect Definitely. and I'm really excited to see you guys expand throughout Canada and of course seeing your new innovation coming and how you guys are going to be able to manage getting the product through or some sort of product. <laughs> I know it's like top secret right now, so I won't probe you in it, but seeing your company grow throughout North America as a whole. And you really are a great example of a North American company, like product right. from Mexico, you're in the US, production in Canada being sold in Canada. It's a great NAFTA uh, <laughs> type of product right there. Exactly. We don't need to pay any sorts of uh, tariffs or anything <laughs> doing all this crazy stuff. So. Exactly. Leverage it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And I look forward to watching you grow. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great uh, spending this time with you. That's it for this week, food friend. Thanks for tuning in. If the show helped you in any way, please go ahead and leave a rating or review of the show below. I also want to thank our sponsor one more time, the Food Brands That Sell program the program to transform how you navigate the CPG industry and ultimately sets you up for success within it. Go ahead and get yourself on the waitlist using the link below, or you can put yourself on the waitlist at foodbrands.sellwaitlist.com. Catch you next time, food friend.